Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Earlier this morning, I was greeted by my children, giving me big hugs, running up and grabbing my legs, and what a joy it is to be a father. This past week, I was able to spend a significant portion of time with uh, a lot of the younger, younger men and women and teens and children, and I want to say that as fathers, we really are blessed. We really are blessed. We've just finished reading uh, through Proverbs as a family after dinner, and it talks a lot in Proverbs about the blessing that children are. Not, not necessarily, but the blessing that children are naturally from God as they're, as they're instructed and trained to love him. It does say that, <laughs> that there are such, a, such children that are a, a pain to a father and a shame to their mothers, but that's if the father and mother do not uh, train their children as God expects of them. And I am so thankful for the young men and women that God has given to this church. It was, a, it, was a, it was a joy to be with them. And so enjoy them today, and kids, enjoy your father. And as you do so, remember to give thanks to God for his goodness because it's from his fatherhood that every facet of fatherhood flows to us. And so enjoy the goodness of God this morning. Last week, we kicked off a new <clears throat> sermon series that's going to carry us through uh, the summer and just into the fall called Pictures of Salvation. And over the next handful of weeks, we're going to look at various men and women from the Old and New Testaments and see in their stories, see in them, that despite a vast variety of circumstances and backgrounds and means, the Holy Spirit leads each and every one of those men and women to the same narrow gate of encountering Christ through faith alone. As I said last week, this encounter is an experience that is particular. It, you have to have it yourself. So we, we talk together about uh, Abraham, Abram, and God appearing to Abram while he was up with his father in Haran with a particular message, a particular call for him. And I stressed the importance last week of God's particular call to each and every one of you. A couple of years ago, well, actually last year, I had the experience of going with my family, my wife and children, out west, and we stayed on the border of Colorado and Utah, and one of the day trips that we, we did was we drove south down to the Gunnison River, and we took our van uh, up, 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 up to the top of the canyon. So there's a canyon, a black canyon of the Gunnison. And this is a canyon that is about 1,000 feet uh, less deep than the Grand Canyon. But... One of the neat things about that canyon is that it is just, um, man, there aren't, one, there aren't many people there. Two, you can walk right up to the edge, and this thing, we went to the north rim of the Grand Canyon, which is like a bunt cake bowl. It's just big, and it's, and it's awesome, and it's vast, um, but it's, it almost looks like you're looking out into, you know, this humongous pool. Whereas the Black Canyon is just a sheer straight drop-off, and, and the two sides of the, 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 the sides of the canyon are very close in proximity to each other, and so it has this very stressful, intense feeling to it when you're standing up on the ledge. It's just all right there. You can see it plummeting down and down and down, and though it's more shallow than the Grand Canyon, honestly, our eyes don't even perceive the difference. So it's, it's like the Grand Canyon, but just right there all in front of you walls of just gray stone. My dad had gone there a number of years back with my little brother Isaiah, and uh, he told me about the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, but his recollection and his narration of what it was like to be there standing on the edge of that cliff cannot do for me what only standing on the cliff edge can do. You understand that? How many of you have ever been somewhere that was just immense, glorious, beautiful, and you take out your phone and you're like, I'm going to memorialize this for every one of my friends at home and show them just what it's like to be here, and you snap a photo. 
If you're like me, you, you take a lot of photos on vacation, and then you come home, and you're telling people stories about where you've been, and you whip this thing out and turn it sideways just to get the full scale, and then you're, you pull it up for them, and you just realize, well, it really was awesome. I mean, it really did look like you were going to plummet to, you know, all the way to China. It just fails to capture it. Have you done that? I've done that many times. It just fails. Pictures fail to capture what being there can only um, convey. It's the same with faith. It's the same with faith. Experiencing Jesus Christ is something that you can hear about, It's something that you can even see the effect of in other people's lives around you. You can see those that you love, their lives transformed. You can see them become different people. But that, that's wonderful, but that's not good enough for you. It has no bearing really on you and, and your soul before God. You must experience Jesus for yourself. You know about him. You know of him. You've seen his work. Do you know him? Do you know him? I hope and I pray that each one of us, each one of those young children that I spent time with and played with this past week, know him. That like Abraham, we, have, we are called to Jesus. We have a particular call that we're not just acquaintances, but friends. Abraham was a friend of God. So this morning, we're going to jump to a new port part in the Bible. We're going to be going all over, not stick, we're not going chronologically. This morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Zacchaeus. But in doing so, I actually want to back up, and I want to start with a passage that comes right before Zacchaeus is introduced to us. And I want to start by reading about another man. His name's Bartimaeus. He's a blind man, and the reason that I want to do this is that I believe these two stories not only are recorded back-to-back by Luke, but that they're actually divinely inspired by God to happen very, very close in proximity for a reason. Reading both these stories is hopefully going to help us emphasize certain things and draw deeper applications from the story of Zacchaeus. So uh, let's stand together. If you have a Bible, open your Bible to Luke chapter 18, verse 35. We're going to start in... 35 of 18, and we're going to go through verse 10 of chapter, of the next chapter, of 19. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was passing by. He called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, be with me in my speech. May the words that I speak be true and right, and may the thoughts of our minds be pleasing. May the disposition of our hearts be tender to the work of the Holy Spirit. May you fill each of us to a degree that we are convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else that is in this whole world, anything that you've created, will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I've got a friend who um, moved from here out to uh, working in New York City. And he is one of those crazy guys that has a long commute. You know anybody with a long commute? Somebody maybe who works in L.A. Andrews told me that some of his, his buddies in the Secret Service, former buddies in the Secret Service, would drive a couple of hours each way, bumper-to-bumper traffic, to get to work every day in L.A. Because they can't afford to live there. And they want a yard because they want a family. So they've got to live a couple hours out. Well, my friend moved to New York, and he had a two-hour commute each way. And he grew in his love for trains while he was working in New York City. He'd hop on, on the train a couple hours out and take, take a train ride in every day to work. And uh, you may or may not have ever ridden trains period- consistently. One of, the, one of the glories of the train is that you can actually focus on, on work or reading or other things and you don't have to pay attention to driving. And so he took that opportunity to audit courses from all sorts of universities every day when he went into work. So he, he was a sort of a perpetual learner, you know, he, the guy who might go to school for his whole life if he had the opportunity and didn't have other responsibilities. So he'd take those two hours every day on his way in and just sit through courses, auditing courses. And, he, and when we'd talk, he'd tell me, oh, I'm taking this course and what he's learning in this course and that course. Now, listen, if you are driving two hours to work every day, I hope you're not working in Toledo. Uh, but th- the reality is, is that technology has enabled us to do things like listen to podcasts on the go. How many of you guys listen to podcasts? Many of you. Many of you. We are used to this idea of utilizing time that might be used to travel to learn, to do something efficient, to listen to a book on tape, to listen to uh, the past and the curious or whatever podcast your kids are listening to while they're doing some activity that doesn't require a whole lot of mental thought. Now, listen. You might think that podcasting on your way into work or auditing a course online is a, is a new concept, which it is, but people have always made good use of time while they're traveling. Throughout the Bible, when you would have rabbis or teachers, one of their primary forms, uh, times of communicating wasn't just Sunday morning. One of their primary forms of teaching was while they would travel. And so you have Jesus all through the Gospels walking with his disciples and those that may be with him at any given point in time, and he's speaking to them. Yeah, he does speak the Sermon on the Mount when they're all gathered. Yeah, he does go out into a boat and teach to those that are on the shore. But in addition to that, Jesus is always teaching. Can you imagine if if Jesus is not in prayer with his Father or asleep, Can you imagine him not seeking to teach those he was around, those that he loved? And so, as people would travel, they would listen to a rabbi, to a teacher, on some sort of discourse as they're traveling. They're walking in bands and groups. That makes sense for many practical reasons, safety and otherwise. But in those groups of people, they are listening to teaching. This is like AM before AM, you know? This is like the radio before the radio. And so in this passage, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And he's in a group of people. And he's going to Jerusalem for Passover. 
And while he's on his way, Jesus is talking with those that he's traveling with. That is the context of what we get into when we start reading in our passage. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's going into Jericho. And as this group approaches Jericho, there's a man. And this man perceives that there's a, a group that's growing, that's approaching. Remember, he's blind. And so, you ever close your eyes at a stoplight? You ever do this? Am I the only one? At a red light, I'll close my eyes and, 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 uh, and guess when it turns green by, by intuition. The reality is there's a slight change in color. I've never been honked at for this, by the way. You can try it on your way home, but not all at once. That would be a disaster. The blind man perceives that there's a group that's approaching him. And so he asks, what's going on? He's out there begging, begging, asking for money. What's going on? Why is there a group that's gathering? Why is this group coming upon me? What's all the commotion about? And they tell him that Jesus is passing by. And he's heard about this Jesus. This is the man who performs miracles who heals the sick, who feeds multitudes. I've heard so much about this man. Bartimaeus, that blind man, I say leaps up, but who knows if he was sitting. He might have been hobbling around. He leaps at least at the opportunity that's come across his path and immediately calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. By his words, we recognize immediately that he, he doesn't just assume that this Jesus is, is a rabbi or a teacher. He calls him the son of David. That tells us something about who he believes Jesus is. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This guy's got a need. Those at the head of the crowd start telling him to be quiet. They start reprimanding him. Now, remember, he had been begging already, so it's not just that he's talking. If a man's begging, they don't mind. But now he starts shouting, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. They say, shut up. Would you please be quiet? How many of you guys taking a road trip and you're trying to listen to something and the kid's in the back, it's just relentless. Mom! 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 Would you please be quiet? No one is talking while I listen to my show. <laughs> These people are annoyed. They're trying to listen to Jesus and they can't hear him because this guy is making an idiot of himself and screaming so they can't hear what this teacher is saying. Maybe they don't want to be brought down from their lofty thoughts. Maybe they don't want to be brought down from those sort of truths that have them feeling very elevated in that moment as they listen to the great teacher. Their minds consumed with exalted, pious thoughts. Or maybe they simply don't want to be inconvenienced by some desperate, unseemly need that this blind man has. He keeps bellowing, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have me. You, you recognize that that might be embarrassing for them. You recognize in our own life that when we encounter things like that, it's embarrassing. It's not right, but it's embarrassing. It's an interesting pattern that I think this exchange is, is striking because what we see here is that these people that are traveling with Jesus, devout Jews no doubt, they're going to celebrate the Passover, they're listening to Jesus' words, they would rather listen to Jesus than see a demonstration of his love and his power. And I think that's a striking thing to recognize because I think that's true for all of us as well. We really want to listen to uh, podcasts about Jesus and listen to sermons and, and read our Bible with our little coffee and put it a picture online or whatever. And we would much rather do that often than actually live the teaching that Jesus has called us to live. It's very easy. I'm not saying that if we have hearts that are actually um, soft to the, to the Word of God, it's not always easy to read the Bible because that Bible is always coming at us with with thoughts that 
should, you know, not afflict us, but poke us and prod us. And in that sense, it's, it's not always easy. But it's always easy to listen and to read and to learn and to grow, right? It's much, much more difficult to live out that which we're being taught. And Jesus doesn't just call us to do and not to listen, of course. He calls us to do both and. But I think this is not the main point of the sermon, but I want to point out right here that this is, this is happening a couple thousand years ago, and it may have happened in your life yesterday. Listening to the Word of God, appreciating it in your mind, but not actually living it out. Shut up! I'm listening to Jesus. Think about the, the, the insanity of that. Can't you tell I'm listening to a sermon? Figure it out yourself, you know, the way we talk to our kids, you know. <laughs> I got to be careful when I say I'm writing my sermon, you know. I think about that. The kinds of things I, I'm writing my sermon, I can't deal with it. And I don't want to be like these people. This blind man has a need. He's desperate. He's desperate for help. I was thinking this morning, I was thinking about um, a situation that happened this past year in our small groups. We have... Uh, the Dominguez family in our group and um, a couple of their kids have cochlear implant hearing, hearing aids. And uh, after, after study one night, all the kids are playing in our front yard. And if you haven't been to our front yard, it's, it, it's four acres. And they're playing and running around in the front yard. And then the kids come in. And guess what they say? They say, Josiah lost his hearing aid. And it's like, huh? It's pitch black. I mean, it's, it's dark. And so we do a chain gang. We got our cell phone lights out. We're walking the yard. We're walking the yard. We walked the yard for an hour. They got, I think they pulled a couple of SUVs in. They're trying to shine the high beams. You know, we're trying to find this little cochlear implant hearing aid in four acres of grass that's just rutted with like mole holes and hills and everything else. It's nasty. And we are desperate to find this thing. And uh, we never found it, so we're taking it, but no, we did find it. <laughs> we did find it, actually. Uh, we had all, most of us had turned back, and we, there was one a fella in the group that stayed out there a little bit longer, and we had been praying, and he found it. But we were desperate. It was a need. I, that's all I'm trying to, to say by sharing that story. It was a desperate need. Like, we were out there all crawling around in the middle of the night. If my neighbors probably thought we were expecting some aliens to kind of descend upon the plane or something. It was, it was, but it was desperate. We are like, we got to find this thing. We are crawling around on our hands and knees. We had a six-foot magnet for roofing, dragging around the field, trying to find this little hearing aid. Desperate to find it because it was valuable. This man is desperate for Jesus, for Jesus' attention. Bartimaeus is so loud, so undignified, so aggressive and persistent that Jesus hears him screaming, and he says, bring him here. And when he gets to Jesus, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Because he hasn't told him. He's just been saying, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And he says, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. This is quite a fascinating thing. Your faith has made you well. Well, what faith did he have? The faith that caused him to hear that Jesus was walking on the road and the faith that caused him to jump up and say, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of our Lord. He was conceived of the Lord. Is that the faith? Well, perhaps, but that's not what he said. The faith was simply that he believed that Jesus was the foretold Son of David and, and, and that he would help him, that he could look to Jesus in desperate need and that Jesus was willing and would respond for his good. He looked to Jesus to save him from something that he understood he had in himself absolutely no control over. You're blind. You can't, it dictates life to you. You don't dictate to it. Jesus could give him sight. Jesus could heal him. Jesus would be merciful. Jesus would be loving. This is, this is his faith in Christ. And Jesus answers his, his request with healing. And immediately, immediately, we're going to come back to those kind of words in this passage. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they praised the Lord. 
So that happens right outside of Jerusalem. All right, you with me? They're on their way, I'm sorry, right outside Jericho. They're on their way to Jerusalem. This happens right outside the city gates. This is the setup for now the rest of the sermon, which we're going to think about Zacchaeus, and we're going to bounce some ideas back and forth off of this story. You with me? Okay. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. One of the things we should bear in mind about Jericho is that it was very wealthy and very important. It was located in the Jordan Valley, and it was right in the path to Jerusalem. You already know that because Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. It's right on the pathway into Jerusalem. In addition to that, it was the checkpoint at which you would cross the Jordan River. And so you can imagine all the trade, all the merchants that would be accessing this city. In addition to that, it had certain natural features that made it a wealthy and a popular city. It had a great palm forest. It had uh, balsam groves, which are said to have perfumed the air. It had a gigantic rose garden that it was very well known for. Uh, The ancient historian Josephus uh, said that this was, quote, a divine region. It was, quote, the fattest in all of Palestine. The Romans carried its dates and its balsam to, the worldwide, to worldwide trade and fame. This all combines to make Jericho one of the greatest taxation centers in Palestine. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was what? Rich. And if you're, you have manners, you don't ever say somebody's rich. It's just unseemly, you know? But Luke says that Zacchaeus was rich. What does it mean? What does all this mean? Well, it means that Zacchaeus was one hated man, doesn't it? <laughs> the people hated this guy. It's no coincidence that just before meeting Zacchaeus, in chapter 18 from where we came this morning, There's the account of the two men that go to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. This has just happened. And if you know about that story, you have the the Pharisee, the religious leader, go into the temple and lift his hands to God and say, Lord, I want to thank you and praise you that I'm not like adulterers and like thieves and like sinners and even like that tax collector over there. Tax collectors were, were hated. When Jesus would recline with tax collectors, he'd be accused by the Pharisees of entertaining tax collectors and sinners. And even Jesus, I want to point this out, Jesus in his teaching says that if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the, what? Tax collectors and sinners do the same. So you recognize that this status of being a tax collector is one that even Jesus at a general level says is is slimy. Tax collectors were slimy. They were thieves. They lied. They were dishonest. They robbed those that they were supposed to support, that they were supposed to serve. Jesus is walking through this wealthy, beautiful city surrounded by devout Jews going to Passover. And as he walks through the city, people gather on the sidewalks and in the doorways of the shops to see this man of whom they've heard so much about. And Zacchaeus was just one of those men in the crowd. But there's a difference between him and everyone else. And what is it? What's the difference between him and everybody else? Because of a birth condition, just like the blind man, he can't see Jesus, can he? He was short. But as well like the blind man as well as the blind man he wasn't going to let the crowd get in his way in the way of his desire to see in comparison with the blind man Zacchaeus's need may not have seemed very great and we aren't told anything about why he wanted to see Jesus we aren't given any detail maybe he was tired of being despised and hated maybe he knew that Jesus had eaten with people like him before Maybe he knew that Jesus had even asked one of his disciples, a former tax collector, to join him in his work on earth. Whatever the reason is, we don't know. We do know that he wanted to see him and that that need 
to see Jesus propelled him to do something that was quite childish, something that would cause the crowd to scoff at their virtually challenged oppressor. Look at the chief tax collector now. Isn't this fitting? He's always sought to exalt himself over us, and now look what he has to do. He has to climb this tree. <laughs> Zacchaeus's internal need is such that he must see Jesus. I'm trying to highlight that point, not only on my page, but in your mind. He needed to see Jesus, come what may. He had a need. He's desperate for Christ, as desperate as the blind man. And so he runs ahead, and he climbs up in this tree so that he could get a glimpse of this guy. He's got a need. He's willing to be undignified. He's willing to look like a fool. He's willing to be ridiculed so that he can see the Christ. Imagine an alternate ending to the story. Jesus is in this crowd, and they're sort of like going through the city like a big centipede weaving around in your yard, and, and they're going up and down the blocks, and they're coming up to that tree, and right as they're about to get to that tree, a woman who didn't get the memo, Jesus is coming into town, opens the front door and has her pail of washing water and tosses it out into the street. And just like that, Jesus could have like looked over to avoid the mess and miss Zacchaeus. Or maybe... There is a child in the crowd, and he fell down and hurt himself, and it, and it just distracts Jesus for one millisecond, and he, he walks right by Zacchaeus and doesn't see him up in that tree. But no, that, that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened. How different that story might have been, but it wouldn't have happened. There are no alternate endings in God's will and in God's choice. There could not have been any distraction that would have made Jesus miss Zacchaeus because long before Zacchaeus knew it, Jesus had a plan for him. And Jesus has a plan for you. Do you have a need for him? Are you desperate for Christ in any tangible way that makes you act undignified? Do you need Christ in a way that causes you to act different from the crowd? Or maybe more to the point, does the crowd notice any difference in you? I think we often always think, yes, I'm acting different, I'm acting different. Well, that's really not the test, is it? We always want to see what we want to see in our own hearts and minds. And so the real test is, do others see a difference in you? Remember what Jordan said in the prayer of confession. The world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. He doesn't say, you'll have a thought in your head that you're my disciple by your love for one another. If we're different, there's no way in which it will not be noticed, observed, commented on. There will be no way in which we aren't, don't suffer for that difference. Our desperate need for Christ is one of the lessons that we cannot afford to miss from Zacchaeus's life. Zacchaeus thought that he needed to be looking for Jesus. Little did he know that Jesus was looking for him. Jesus looks up in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. He doesn't say, dude, you look ridiculous. He doesn't say, you had it coming. Isn't this poetic justice? He doesn't even say, hey, Zacchaeus, I know that you're kind of you know, rich and all, and you kind of got a big house, and I wondered if, uh, you know, I might just uh, stay at your guest house tonight. What you think? Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus hears three things from our Lord Christ. Hurry, come down, today I must stay at your house. Hurry, come down, today I must must stay at your house. Just as there was an urgency to gain an audience with Jesus in the story of the blind man, just as there was an urgency to gain a position by which one could see Jesus in Zacchaeus' story, there is urgency in the call of Jesus to you, to Zacchaeus, to every one of us. He says, hurry, don't procrastinate. Don't delay. Come down quickly. I'm staying at your house today. Think about all the words in there that, that signify to us this sense of immediateness. Zacchaeus, had Zacchaeus delayed, 
there'd be no guarantee that Jesus would have issued that call again. Had he lingered, there's no telling whether Jesus would have hung around for him to climb out of that tree or whether he would have kept walking. There's always an urgency, a need for urgency in our response to Christ. And this is true whether he's talking to Zacchaeus or whether he's talking to his disciples. Remember, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, come with me. And what did they say to him? Well, first, let me go and, uh, you know, say goodbye to my parents. And what did he say? No, come now. You can deal with your parents later. Is this true with his story of the great king who threw a feast? The great king who threw a feast, who invited all his neighbors to the banquet. And the, those that were invited to the banquet didn't say they'd never come. It just said, ah, you know, today isn't a good day. I've got some work to do. I've got my own celebration to have. I've got to care for my mother. And the king doesn't say, okay, you know what, let's just, uh, the last party I threw, little did I know, I was throwing it on one of the 10 million wedding dates in the life of our church. So what did I do? I sent out the text. It's like you, you curate this sucker, you know, emojis and everything. The thing is perfect. You send it out, and like within five seconds, there's a wedding that night. I'm like, psst, you know, oh, man. Okay, but guess what? No problem. You know, we all had something better to do. It was better. The wedding was better than what I wanted to do. No problem. I'll find another date that works. Not so with Jesus, right? This feast that the king throws. They say, ah, it doesn't really work for my schedule. In fact, everyone, it was just like my situation. Everyone the king asked had something better to do. Why didn't the king just postpone? Why didn't he just say, well, we'll find a date next week? Because he doesn't linger. He doesn't wait. His call is immediate. They can't come? Okay, make new invitations and send those, send, go throughout the streets and take anyone who's willing to come. When? 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 Now. It's true with the parable of the virgins. We just went through Matthew. That, sh that, that story should be fresh in our minds. When Jesus comes, those who didn't have the oil are, are not ready, are not available Jesus does not say, I'll wait around. 14 is better than 7. I'll wait around for him. No, he goes, right? There is urgency in our response to Christ. Jesus tells Zacchaeus to come down. Now, listen, Jesus never allows us to stay where we are if we are going to follow him. That's just a simple truth. It's a simple, not, not just a truth, it's a reality. If, if we don't change where we don't change where we are if he doesn't take us to a, a different place like he took Abram last week like he like he's saying to Zacchaeus this week then we we likely aren't following him Jesus never allows us to stay in the same spot when he calls us he didn't allow Abraham to stay in Haran he doesn't allow Zacchaeus to stay in his perch if Zacchaeus was to entertain Christ he was to move Jesus doesn't let us stay as we are Interestingly, Jesus is the one asking to stay the night, but he doesn't ask. He informs. Today, I must stay at your house. There's no open door for Zacchaeus to politely refuse or to delay or to circumvent Jesus. You recognize that. Is that striking? There's absolutely no way that he can politely and subtly decline the man's not the man's insistence that he's going to stay with him. Zacchaeus will either have to have Jesus as his honored guest, or he will deny Jesus' entry to his house. Those are the only two options. There's no other way to deal with Jesus. That's the reality. Embrace rejection. That's the teaching of Jesus. That's the teaching of Jesus we see narrated in this account of Zacchaeus. There's no other road. Embrace rejection. There's no subtle, well, maybe, yeah, let's, hey, let, let me check my calendar. Oh, my wife's having a knitting club over tonight. When, could we, can, tomorrow, you know. doesn't work. How did Zacchaeus respond? We're going to finish this morning by thinking about Zacchaeus' response. Well, he hurried. He came down. And he received Jesus gladly. 
what the Word of God says. He hurried, he came down, he received Jesus gladly from his heart. Not mere empty actions, a heart that was glad to receive Jesus. This is what Zacchaeus' faith looked like. He was glad to respond to Christ. He couldn't imagine anything more that he would enjoy. You think about this guy. He was the chief tax collector. He was rich. He could have bought a Tesla if he wanted to. He maybe had a pool. He maybe had servants. Who knows? But he had all sorts of worldly blessings, possessions, things, and yet Jesus is what he wants. Jesus is what actually makes his heart glad. He hurried immediately. He came down and received him gladly. This is what Zacchaeus' faith looked like. It's interesting to consider the response of the crowd witnessing this exchange. They don't like what's happened, and they begin to grumble. Now, this would be one of the disharmonies between the passage about the blind man and the passage about Zacchaeus. We're told that Jesus gives sight to a blind man, and they all rejoice and praise the Lord. But when Jesus gives attention to Zacchaeus, they grumble. Now, why? Well, they don't like Jesus showing love to someone that they deem unworthy. They don't like the idea of Jesus eating with a man who's a sinner, so unlike themselves, of course. Though their grumbling is wrong, though it's embarrassing for Zacchaeus, you think about it, put yourself there in that crowd. You know, Zacchaeus has come down, Jesus is starting to go towards his house, and the crowd, like, starts naysaying it, like, this is a bad idea. I can't believe Jesus doesn't have the discernment to see that he's going to be, you know, eating with the scum of the earth. And, you know, if you're Zacchaeus, what's going on? Well, the shame of all your sins is just being sort of laid out there, isn't it? Right? And they shouldn't have grumbled, and they shouldn't have been proud and hard-hearted and seen Zacchaeus as worse than them. And they shouldn't have second-guessed Jesus. All those things were wrong, and yet Jesus does work all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so this grumbling um, presents an opportunity for Zacchaeus to do something. It it is the catalyst by which uh, Zacchaeus uh, shows his faith. The crowd is grumbling, talking about what a sinner this guy is, And it says in your passage, if you can look at it, it says, Zacchaeus stopped. Zacchaeus stopped. Now, everything thus far has been go, 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 go. They're walking, blind guy screaming. Immediately he receives his sight. They keep walking. They go, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. I'm going to your house today. The guy, you know, delayed disobedience. Obedience is disobedience. So the guy goes right down. And they start to go off to his house, and then the thing that causes Zacchaeus to stop is the grumbling. And we're told Zacchaeus stopped, and he said to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And again, a sense of urgency. Listen, the term translated, I will give back, in my Bible and likely in your Bible, um, is a present tense verb in the Greek. It doesn't read very well in English. It doesn't read like the way we would naturally speak. But this is no claim that he's going to sometime in the future repay the people he's defrauded. This is no, no claim that, you know, he's changed his ways and that he won't defraud going forward. This is a claim, a promise, a public declaration that those he has defrauded, he will pay back immediately. It's, it's more like saying, Come forward and claim what's yours. Here and now I give to you. That's, that's a more accurate rendering of what the Greek says, although it's a little bit, uh, you know, doesn't fit our language very well. This is another contrast between the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, um, pardon me. This is another contrast between the stories in... The, Okay, this is, this, is, um, this is another contrast, this time, between Zacchaeus and the crowd that told the blind man to shut up. 
Whereas when the crowd with the blind man told him to be quiet, they didn't care to enact the teaching of Jesus. This is a striking contrast. Zacchaeus has Jesus coming to his house for a dinner to sit in a private room and talk with the Lord. And you can imagine the excitement to get to do that. That's not something that the crowd got on the way to the Passover, but he's going to get it. Of course there would be excitement to get there, don't you think? There would be joy in that. But instead of just going straight there, Jesus didn't tell him to stop. He said, come on, let's go. We're in a hurry. I'm going to your house tonight. When his sins and his, you know, the, his thievery was voiced by the crowd, he stops and he says to Jesus, I'm going to make everything right here and now. He does the exact opposite of what the crowd does. He actually, rather than wanting to listen to Jesus' private voice, wants to live out what Jesus had commanded, doesn't he? That's the way that you need to live. That's the way I need to live, like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus doesn't just right his wrongs. He gives half of his money away. And then from what remained, he vowed to give back four times what he had defrauded. This is twice what the law would have required him to give back for theft. So in the Old Testament, in Exodus 22, um, it says that if somebody steals something, they have to replace it twofold. He's not even content to do that. He's doing fourfold here. And what is the result of this urgent need? What is this result of treasuring Christ above all else? Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now it says in verse 9, Jesus said to him, referring to Zacchaeus, but of course, if Jesus was not speaking to the crowd as well, it would have said, today salvation has come to this house because you are a son of Abraham. But Jesus is saying to the crowd, salvation has come to this house because he too, this guy, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came, has come, to seek and save that which was lost. What a wonderful declaration. What a beautiful truth. There's rejoicing in heaven at this moment in Zacchaeus' life. And I think that we all need to ponder and ask ourselves, have those in heaven rejoiced over you? Are you a son of Abraham do you believe God like Abraham did? Are you needy like Zacchaeus? Like Zacchaeus in the pivotal moment, we will all come up short unless we look to faith in Jesus Christ. Just think about that last verse. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The promise wasn't only for Zacchaeus. It's for you and it's for me. It's all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, you know, last year I was thinking about this idea of falling short, and for some reason when I was thinking about what, the, what God tells us in that verse, I was thinking back to last year I went on a, on a climbing trip. It was my first one. I've never climbed. I'm not a cli- Look at me. I'm not a climber. But I went on this trip, and in climbing, you know, it, you have to have a lot of faith to climb because, you know, I've got this instructor and he's like telling me like, you know, oh, here's, here's, a, here's a clear handhold, grip this, you know. And here, step on this little nub half as big as your nose, you know. Like, it's, it's the best one on the wall. Look at it, it's right there. I'm like, where? You made a magnifying glass? See? And there are points at which when you get into a little bit harder climbs, you actually have to like... You can't just reach everything. And that's the point at which my body failed and Carter's excelled. <laughs> at every point where you had to actually leap and jump and grab onto something, I mean, I just didn't make it. But when you're climbing, when I fall short, I really don't want help. There's ropes, there are guys that can help hoist your big rear up the wall. But you don't want it. I mean, any self-respecting guy doesn't want to go down and take a trip to be hoisted up the side of a wall. My pride does not want me to have to reach out for any sort of help. I didn't want to do it on the wall. We don't want to do it when it comes to salvation. God has said, all have sinned and fallen short 
we, we can't make that leap. Failure is inevitable. But Jesus has come to seek you out and offer salvation. He desires to save that which was lost. What a precious truth. So as we, as we close, I want to ask, do, do you know that you are lost? Do you know that you have a need for Jesus, just like the blind man in Zacchaeus? You do. The only question is, ironically, whether or not you can see it. To every man and woman who knows that they are lost, there is wonderful news. Jesus offers you every kindness, every blessing, every mercy, every favor that he offered to Zacchaeus. Jesus says the same thing to you that he says to Zacchaeus. He says he wants to stay with you, but not just for one night on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to take up residence within you, in your heart, in your soul, in your affections, in your loves, on your way to eternity, rather on his way to pass, rather than on his way to Passover. And so I want to ask, are you willing to respond as Zacchaeus did? Jesus said, hurry, I'm staying at your house. Not tomorrow, not once you've gotten all the things done that you want to do and you decide you can take time out of your life for him. Not when you've decided it's a better time, but right now. Jesus calls you, and his call is completely sincere, but you would be a fool to draw the conclusion that since his call is sincere, the offer will never close. You understand that? You'd be a fool. We don't do that with Amazon packages. We've all received a package that was broken or different than described, and almost everything on Amazon is free returns. You'd be a fool to get that package at your doorstep and look back and it says free returns, and so you sit on it for six months and then expect that you're going to be able to return it. I've done that before. I learned my lesson. If it happens with things like, we, we wouldn't do that. We would respond right away. It's the same with Jesus. He's completely sincere. He's completely sincere. But it does, his sincerity doesn't mean that the door is always open or that his call will always stand just as it stands now. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There's an urgency to the gospel. There's an urgency to life. The life that you think is so sure is actually fleeting. And it would be a mistake to say that even the most simplistic of lives is predictable. Jesus says not to, to even make a claim about what's going to happen tomorrow because you cannot make that sort of claim. Today has enough troubles of its own. But there is Jesus there today calling out to you and offering himself to you. Will you respond? Will you receive him gladly like Zacchaeus did? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would, that we would treasure you every day and know that all things of earth die and decay. But like you said to Mary and Martha in the house, there is only one thing that matters, and that is you and our devotion and our attention to you. And so we pray that you would be precious to each one of us, that we would love you, and that we would treasure you beyond everything else that this world could offer, just as Zacchaeus was changed and found. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.